0: This is at page 412 in your pew Bible, that's helpful. You uh, remember, if you've been following this series, that a terrible decree, a royal decree, has been issued, sent out across the entire Persian Empire. The killing, destruction, and annihilation of all Jews, young and old, women and children, has been scheduled by royal decree to take place 11 months hence. The only one who is even remotely able to intercede now to act as a mediator between the Jews and the king is the Jew inside the palace. Esther is her Persian name, queen of Persia. She is a closet Jew. Well, it's time to come out, her uncle Mordecai essentially says. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for just such a time as this. Well, Esther is naturally fearful. You would have been too. To the king to go to the king's inner courtroom unsummoned was death. Unless, unless there was a last second reprieve from the king extending his scepter. And her chances for that seem pretty slim at the moment, uh, considering the fact that the king has not called on her for the past thirty days. Oh, what to do? Esther knows. Let's pray. Father, we ask for the grace to receive your word and to find our lives more and more conformed to it. In Jesus' name, amen. Verse 15 of chapter 4, Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf. And do not eat or drink for these three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. Hold a fast. Sounds kind of old-fashioned, doesn't it? To some, maybe even positively medieval, like something you might hear about as you walk down some dimly lit corridors of stone-walled uh, stone hallway of, of a monastery as the folds of your burlap-like uh, garment rub your ankles bare to the sound of chanting, you know, fasting conjures up images in the modern mind of of superstitious ancient Christians beating themselves with whips in order to merit the blessings of God, fasting and flagellating. Indeed, fasting sounds almost un-American, doesn't it? With our constant concentration on sumptuous foods, uh, on, on gourmet restaurants. We're very skilled at feasting. We're pretty slow at fasting, and so we're not very accustomed to it, are we? One pastor I heard at uh, our Denominations General Assembly many years ago urging us to urge our churches to pray for the unborn with fasting uh, confessed that the first time he was invited to a Christian gathering to, uh, to pray and fast, he, he, he packed a... A bag lunch to take with him, but uh, fasting with prayer is not simply a medieval practice for cloistered monks, uh, nor is it a practice whose value expired when superstitious Christians turned, turned fasting into a means of currying God's favor for salvation. Fasting with prayer is a biblical spiritual discipline. And in fact, if you'll consult the Scriptures on this point, you will find that it's not only biblical, it is all over the place, an essential ingredient and important in a growing and mature spiritual life and walking with God. And for that reason, we take the opportunity afforded to us by our text this morning to commend this spiritual discipline of praying with fasting i say this passage commends uh, us uh, or rather affords us the opportunity but i certainly don't mean that there are not many many other passages in the bible that do the same that commend this practice to us and indeed there are passages upon passages upon passages which rightly which remind us of the importance uh, that the saints, rightly thinking, have always laid on this discipline of fasting. A quick scan of the Scripture shows us that, that, that fasting was the practice of individuals. It was the practice of nations, of groups of people, of the church. Moses, David, Elijah, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, here, Daniel, Anna, Cornelius, Paul, Barnabas, and that's just to mention a few, all fasted, as did, of course, the one who is not only our Savior, but our chief example, Jesus himself. Israel and Judah fasted, as did, you'll remember, the wicked but repentant city of Nineveh. Saul's valiant men, David and his men, the Jews on multiple occasions, including here in Susa, the people and the priests, the prophets and the teachers in Antioch, the newly established churches as recorded in the book of Acts, even married couples in Corinth all fasted. So clearly, this this fasting is, is part of the practice of the Christian life, as is demonstrated in in Holy Scripture, and is especially a feature of the Christian life of prayer. Now, what does Scripture mean by fasting? Well, simply this, it means denying oneself. And by the way, if that sounds familiar, it ought to. Jesus said it, was, it is an essential part of being a Christian. Deny yourself It is denying oneself of something pleasurable, or something desirable, or even of something necessary for a period of time in order to serve a greater purpose, that purpose usually being prayer. Now, the most common item from which Christians fast is also the one we think of first, of food but biblical fasting is not limited only to food, nor does it necessitate abstinence from all food. In Daniel 10, you remember, we read of a three-week-long fast of Daniel's in which he abstained from choice food, that is, from meat and from wine. On the other hand, there are stricter fasts. Here, this, this fast in Esther uh, was to be... Uh, uh, of no food or drink for three solid days, day or night. Now, typically in the Bible, total fasts are shorter, partial fasts are longer. Paul also implies in his first letter to the Corinthians that there is a type of fasting. We studied this together, didn't we, in this house of worship not too long ago, very carefully and mutually circumscribed between a husband and a wife, a fast from sexual intimacy for the sake of prayer. According to Scripture, that kind of fast must be one in which the husband and wife are in complete agreement, of course, clearly defined, and then ended clearly by coming back together, lest Satan tempt into sin. But whatever kind of fast we engage in, whether total or partial, they're from food or some other type of abstinence. A fast must be voluntary. It must be a voluntary act of self-denial or of self-affliction, and that, after all, is a is the word that Scripture uses to describe fasting from time to time. Uh, it is an affliction of self, self affliction. That's exactly what fasting is. Ezra, Leviticus, Isaiah, Psalm, Psalm thirty-five, and so on. Now there is a spiritual purpose behind all of this. We're not talking about fasting to lose weight. We're not talking about fasting to lower your Cholesterol uh, to fast for those reasons and then to act like you're fasting for religious reasons is, in a word, hypocrisy. And the scripture has plenty to say about false fasting as well, doesn't it? The kind of fasting that God will not honor, in fact, the kind of fasting that his soul hates. So we'll do well to consider first and briefly a few negatives, I think, when it comes to this matter of fasting, biblical fasting. First, we must remember that there is no intrinsic value to fasting. There's no intrinsic value to fasting. Like everything else in the Christian life, motive and intention, sincerity, humility... Faith. These are all required to make any spiritual discipline useful and pleasing to God. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all that I get. You remember that prayer? Remember that prayer in the Bible? There was a Pharisee in Jesus' parable, face up to heaven, full of himself, so certain, so self-confident that if he did these things, if he did these outward uh, things, if he fasted and tithed, well, certainly God must be pleased with me. and I have God at my beck and call. But his words no sooner left his lips than they hit the floor. And they stayed there, right there on the floor, getting nowhere. Why? Because without faith, it is nothing. In fact, it's worse than nothing. All the works, all the acts, all the religious routine is is nothing apart from faith. No value in itself. Second, let's bear in mind in our fasting that we cannot substitute fasting for required acts of righteousness, of obedience. And we've seen this together, haven't we, in, our, in the prophets. That God will not receive an act of worship when it's given as a substitute for Obedience. Obedience missing elsewhere in in a person's life or in a congregation's life. Isaiah addressed this very point to disobedient Israel's chagrin. He warned the people, remember, Behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure. You oppress All your workers. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and fight, to hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice heard on high. True fasting must rise out of a life that is otherwise faithful and obedient and repentant. You, In other words, you may not just willfully entertain sin in your life and, and then come tripping over, skipping over to God and, and, and fasting before Him. He won't have it. It must be both, you see. It must be a life both of of humble, repentant broken-hearted striving after obedience and fasting and prayer now, the early christians understood this well and so wrote things like this fasting is very good provided that the commandments of the lord be observed Observe as as follows the fasting you intend to keep. First of all, refrain from both speaking and hearing what is wrong, and cleanse thy heart from all pollutions, from all revengeful feelings, and from all covetousness, and reckon up what thy meal on this day would have cost thee, and give the amount to some widow or orphan or to the poor." cannot substitute fasting for obedience. Third, a true fast must not be a merely outward act, but a work of the heart. Rend your... Fill in the blank, dear ones. Rend your hearts. Yes, not your garments, says Joel. Now, Joel was not saying that it's unimportant to worship the Lord and to demonstrate your repentance outwardly and bodily and in visible, tangible ways. What he was decrying is merely outward appearances that leave the heart uninvolved. You could fast all day long. You would tear up a whole closet full of clothes, You know, uh, but if it's only an outward show without the heart, it's nothing. In fact, it's worse than nothing, isn't it? It's worse than worthless. Return to me with all your heart, says the Lord. With all your heart, With fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, says the Lord. Don't leave off the ladder, only make sure that behind the fasting, the praying, the weeping, the mourning, that he finds your heart engaged, not just your stomach, now, we could go on and on this morning. There are a number of abuses of fasting that we could address, a whole catalog of them. But, but let's hasten on to consider some positive. What, what purpose or purposes does fasting serve that it should be part of our spiritual lives still today? Well, first we should fast as an expression of, humili- of, humility, of humility. Of humility, of humble dependence on God. And closely related to that as a means of expressing our penitence and our sorrow for our sin before Him. Sometimes that point is made explicitly in the Bible. At other times, such as here in Esther, the heart posture of humble dependence is implied. And how central this matter of humility is to the genuine Christian life, isn't it? It truly is the jewel that is missing from so much of modern Christianity, a humble sense of my utter dependence, O oh Lord, on you for everything, all the time, a humble sense of my complete dependence upon the Lord. You know, it's missing from, from, from us because we've got our money and we have our five-year plans and And we have our technology, and we have a book or two or ten on every subject from improving our marriage to growing our church. We need to fast today, if for no other reason than to break us of our pride and of our perceived self sufficiency. Fasting reminds us that we are utterly dependent upon God for everything we have and everything we are. And then closely related to to that need for humility is our need for broken and sorrowful hearts over our sin. Makes sense, doesn't it? Uh, I mean, if you really feel woe over your sin. If you come maybe to a period of especially deep and sharp grief, conviction of sin, you can't just go on with life as usual, can you? As if all were well. Here's where self-affliction that the Bible speaks about comes in. It's sort of a chastisement that we inflict upon ourselves in sympathy with the righteous judgments of the Lord. That godly Scottish minister, Robert Murray McShane, has an entry in his diary, and it it reads this way. The subject of fasting was spoken upon. Felt exceedingly in my own spirit how little we feel real grief on account of sin before God, or we would often lose our appetite for food. When parents lose a child they often do not taste a bit of food from morning to night out of pure grief. Should we not mourn as for an only child? So with us Christians, fasting will be for us both the means of, and the result of conviction for sin. Sometimes it will be necessary for us to fast simply for our own soul's sense of sin and need for fresh forgiveness. At other times we'll fast as our soul's grieving response for sin. Either way, conviction and humility and repentance, you see, these these things go hand in hand with fasting. Your fast bears witness to your, your desire to take your sins full seriously before our holy God, just as we ought to take them. Second, fasting can be a means of breaking our sinful will. You know, of strengthening the holy will and of promoting spiritual discipline. Life under Persia, as we've seen here in, in the cases of Mordecai and Esther. Persian life, life under the Persian Empire had become a, something of a life of ease for our spiritual fathers and mothers. They had accommodated themselves to, to their culture. and They even got swallowed up by it. Their very names reflected their Persian dominance, and accommodation. This fast that Esther calls for, that Esther orders, it's not only a petition to God, it it winds up being a wake-up call to the sleepy saints. This is how we grow as Christians still today. By putting to death the sinful nature and bringing to life the disciplines of, of righteousness and holiness and obedience and purity. This is the very point that the Apostle Paul's been making to us in the evening worship services from, from Ephesians. You see, the one who fasts forces his body, her body, to say no. No. To say no to certain things, even when the flesh, when the body is crying out, yes, yes, yes. Fasting helps us to learn to control ourselves, to take mastery over our bodies, rather than being slaves to our flesh and to what it desires, its passions, its wants. When I ran in high school, the only sport for which I had enough coordination to participate, I couldn't dribble, shoot, or bat, but I could put one foot in front of the other. Um, the more time I spent in training, uh, the more I—the forcing my body to do what it most certainly did not want to do—the more control. I had over my body you know at the beginning of the track season I was a slave to my body and by the time season was over I was taking mastery of my body Paul says as much in 1 Corinthians 9 do you not know that you are in a race that in a a race all the runners run but only one gets the prize well run in such a way as to get the prize Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training, Paul says. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like a man running aimlessly. I do not fight like a man beating the air. No, I beat my body and make it my slave. So that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. There are some sobering words. Now whatever Paul means here by beating his body, and there is great debate over that question, at the very least, he certainly deprived his body from time to time, of what it craved, saying no when his body was demanding things from him. Now, no doubt, no doubt he did this, especially by fasting, by denying his hungry body food for certain periods of time. And so, in that way, he gained mastery of his body so that he could then say no whenever and, and to whatever it was that that his body wanted. And by saying no to perfectly permissible desires, he and you will be able to say no to the sinful desires as well. There's a discipline, there's a training going on here. The saints throughout history have had the same experience. In fact, the disciplines of the body have in the disciplines of the heart Thomas Shepard in his journal writes I kept a private fast for the conquest of my pride so too we'll gain greater conquest over our, our own sin through this practice of fasting and mastering our own flesh so as to master our own hearts Third, and finally, fasting will serve to intensify our petitionary prayers. That's the prayers, I mean, in which we're asking, petitioning God for something. You know, Esther could have said a number of things at this point. Sent a message to Uncle Mordecai. Uh, Uncle Mordecai, ask everyone to pray. Ask everyone to pray. Or, uh, Mordecai, call prayer meetings all over Susa. But instead, she calls for an all out fast. Why? Because she jumps, she knows that that, that prayer is intensified, Uh, that asking is turned into imploring when prayer is accompanied by fasting. We've learned that as a congregation. We've practiced that, haven't we, just in the last few weeks together. John Calvin suggests that this is, in fact, the chief purpose of fasting, to render us more eager and unencumbered for prayer. Surely we experience this, he goes on in his Institutes, with a full stomach, our mind is not so lifted up to God then it can be draw, that it can be drawn to prayer with a serious and ardent affection and persevere in it. You all know this from experience, don't you? How those hunger pains in the middle of the day when you're fasting and praying act like alarm clocks to you. And how your prayers are the more intensified by the growling of the stomach or whatever it is. Still, we read a passage like this, and and we're left to wonder a bit, aren't we? What exactly does fasting accomplish in the relationship between us and God? (laughs) We know, we've just mentioned, how fasting affects us. What does fasting accomplish on the divine side? I'm not sure we can confidently say that we've wrapped our fingers all the way Around, uh, even with all the great studies that have been done these hundreds and thousands of, of years, that we've really closed our fingers around this doctrine and this practice. There's, there's some mystery here. But this much we do know and know for certain God has been pleased to teach this to, and from time to time to require it from His people. And wherever it has been done and done from the heart, it has had this glorious effect of nurturing and strengthening the saints for holy lives and for effectual prayers. It has served as a great means for teaching us this terrible seriousness of being a Christian and of the Christian life, of prayer as the great tool for advancing the kingdom of God and of sacrificial living as the norm, not the exception, the norm of a genuine Christian life. Surely this discipline being of such great importance to our Savior as it is. And so often appearing in His holy book must be practiced in, in fitting ways by us still today. So I say, Christians, with the Word of God in your hands and the love of God governing your hearts, let us learn also to fast and pray and by so doing come into the possession of those Blessings that God deigns in this way and only in this way to give. Amen.